Turn in your Bibles, if you would, ladies and gentlemen, John chapter 21. That's where we will find our scriptural text this morning. And first of all, let me give you a little bit of a reminder. I know that Dan shared with you this morning in Sunday school, and we heard it said, uh, none of this has taken God by surprise. He is still on His throne. And ladies and gentlemen, let me remind you that according to the psalmist, according to Jeremiah 1 and other passages, God formed us in our mother's wombs. And God birthed us and placed us exactly where He wanted us, when He wanted us. So we are all here for, as David said, such a time as this. You know, we preached the week before Thanksgiving, and we reminded everyone that we are the exception to Christianity in history. As a matter of fact, these last five decades have probably been the most comfortable period of time in Christian history to be a Christian. Post-World War II, we've all lived in the most militarily powerful planet, our country on the planet. We have lived in the most free and prosperous uh, country on the planet. We enjoy luxuries in our lives, even a lower middle class or, or uh, even, even at the poverty level. The comforts that we enjoy in the United States of America surpass anything else around the world. And if you've ever traveled around the world, you'll recognize that. You go to a luxury hotel and get a luxury room, even when we go to Israel, and I love Israel, but you look at a luxury hotel and a, and a luxury uh, room in Israel, and it's about half the size of a room you'd find at a Hampton Inn, and not as nice as what you have. I mean, we literally have enjoyed all the creature comforts of life, and we've had absolute religious liberty. Those things may be tightening. That's not going to happen overnight. And rest assured, we are going to be involved in every battle we can uh, at the political level. Biblical principles of every area and aspect of our lives. We will be defending those liberties. But we also need to be equipped as a church and as individuals if we are going into a time like has been prevalent over 2,000 years of Christian history and 6,000 years of biblical history, a time of toughness. You know, I preached a few weeks ago, Dan's mentioned it many times, the old adage, good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. Hard times create strong men, and strong men create good times. And then the cycle repeats as good times produce weak men. We have just enjoyed an extended period of good times, and we have an overwhelming number of weak men, especially calling themselves Christians and in areas of public service. Well, you know what? Times of heat, times of pressure, hard times are what reveal those heroes. It was the mandate by the king of Media Persia that said, You cannot uh, have religious liberty, Daniel. You must only pray to me. That revealed Daniel with his heroic stand in the lion's den. 
It was the, another attack on religious liberty that revealed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as great heroes of the faith. So recognize that heroes of the faith are revealed in the midst challenging times. I expect to see incredible stories of heroism among patriots and the body of Christ across America in these next years, months, or weeks leading up to the rapture. I'd like to tell you, as I've talked with many of my friends, that all of this is unexpected. Quite frankly, everything that I see going on is exactly what I do expect to see in that generation leading up to the rapture. We've just never known when it would be. For 2,000 years, we've kept an ear open towards the east, awaiting it expectingly. But when the things I see prophesied in, quite frankly, all the prophets, but especially Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Revelation 12, Revelation 17, um, the things, Matthew 24, the things that I am seeing is exactly what I would expect to see. So what does that say? I am just like everyone of you. I am, and quite frankly, I have been in a state of mourning for about nine months because I'm knowledgeable enough of Scripture, knowledgeable enough of history. As I saw this all begin back in March, this is exactly what I expected would happen. I preached a message on May the 3rd called Connecting the Dots. If you go back and listen to it, you'll see that everything that I said I thought was happening is exactly what we have seen happen. So there is a period of mourning because whatever we once were as a country, as great as we have been at times, we are no more. Whatever we go going forward will look different. To what degrees? Don't know. That's why we're in this battle. So there is certainly discouragement. There's also some apprehension and fear. Quite frankly, I don't want a jail ministry from the inside. I like liberty. I've enjoyed the creature comforts that we have had. But there's also, as Dan mentioned last week in his sermon, excitement and anticipation. Recognizing that, as I said a moment ago, everything that we are seeing going on is exactly what I would expect to see for that generations of Christians that was alive leading up to the rapture. So recognize that at any point in time, when you wake up, there was an old preacher that used to say, had a motto, perhaps today. Well, the reality is, is perhaps today. Now, thank you for being in church. Obviously, we are, have been addressing all these issues, and this is the place we need to be. And quite frankly, I don't care what doctors or whatever say, we have always used common sense. We wash our hands. We keep our immune system up. But we have seen no difference in our church over the last 12 months than we have seen in any other year. We let people, again, this is self-government. If you are inclined and prefer to wear a mask, by all means, we encourage you to do so. If you want to distance from other people, by all means, I would encourage you to do so. But we don't require it here. And for the most part, most people don't. We still hug. We have donuts and coffee. We have meals on Wednesday nights. And we have seen no difference in our congregation than we do any other year during any other flu season. So be here with us. 
You need the assembling together. Psychological warfare wants to isolate people. Boy, it's a whole lot easier to control individuals and to discourage individuals when you can isolate them and then control the message that you're feeding them. The Bible says we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And it tells us that some of the prime reasons are so we can hold each other accountable and also encourage each other to provoke one another unto love and to good works. You need to be here. And if you're a pastor, if you're attending a church, that, and you don't know at this point in time where he stands on Black Lives Matter or where he stands on Joe Biden, or if he supports either, you are in the wrong church. Amen. It's time to abandon these pretend churches. Right. We welcome you here. We may not have any empty seats. Great. Aren't you glad you're not on the Mayflower for 66 days? <laughs> Aren't you glad this is as bad as it is enjoying the liberty, Christian liberty that we still enjoy here? And we will continually be observing. I don't know. We, we, could, we could expand to some degree and try to increase the size of our auditorium. That is an option. We may go to two services. That is something we've been considering. We're talking about all sorts of possibilities. Um, quite frankly, ladies and gentlemen, it may be illegal to gather in church in six months. So before we invest a whole lot of money... Uh, in, a, in, in something that's not going to be usable in the future. We're just trying to be cautious. So be patient with us and be praying for clarity. But aren't you glad when you look around, aren't you got, glad you're in a room with so many like-minded, born-again, Bible-believing, patriotic Americans? John chapter 21. This is in the upper room. This is after the resurrection And I'll begin in verse 24 and read down through the end of the chapter. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came on that Sunday evening. And the other disciples therefore said unto Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said unto them, Well, except I shall see his hands and the prints of the nails. And I, in, fact, in fact, unless I can put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into the imprint where the spear pierced his side and heart, then I will not believe. And after eight days, again, the disciples were within the upper room. This time Thomas was with them. And what do you know? Jesus showed up once again, the doors being shut now, the point there is Jesus just was there in His glorified body. didn't have to walk through the door. He just came through the wall and said, Shalom. Then said He to Thomas, Thomas, reach your finger and behold my hands, and reach your finger, thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believe. And Thomas answered, and again, I infer, I can just see him going from two feet kneeling down to both knees, standing before, or kneeling now before the Lord Jesus, and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen this overwhelming evidence, all this evidence convinced you to believe. But blessed are they that don't have the chance to stick their fingers into the nail prints. Blessed are they that are just going to have to believe based upon the testimony of my resurrection. And many other signs or evidences truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you might believe. We've got all this evidence, all this testimony compiled here, given to you that you might believe that Jesus 
is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of the Word of God. The title of today's message is this, What is Faith? I developed this line of thought recently and actually presented much of it in a funeral. But the message is so important that the entirety of the congregation needs to hear it. We hear the expression, he is a person of faith. What does that mean? We hear the expression, oh, she has faith. Or you might hear a pastor say, oh, you just need faith. What does that even mean? Faith in what? Faith in faith? And what is faith? Is faith simply wanting something to be true so much that you wish for it long enough until it actually becomes true? Well, if that's true, then theoretically, if you believe in the Easter Bunny long enough, then eventually he will, in fact, become true. If you believe in the Tooth Fairy and want the Tooth Fairy to be true long enough, then by that logic, eventually, the Tooth Fairy will exist. Or better yet, if I say, oh, I believe in God, then does God suddenly exist? And if I don't believe in God, then God doesn't exist. Or better yet, we say some magic words some, okay, somebody's at my door. They've walked in. They're sitting down with me. They've shown me Romans ten thirteen in the Bible. You mean if I say these magic words, Jesus saved me, then all of a sudden I'm saved and that's it. You can go away and leave me alone and, and everything's taken care of. That's all I've got to do? No. Hebrews 11, 1 says that faith is actually based upon substance and evidence. In fact, let me say this, and this is a point I want you to remember throughout this message and after. Faith is examining the evidence and being convinced that something is true, then trusting in that belief to the point where it changes your entire life and behavior. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own viewpoints. In all your ways acknowledge Him or acknowledge the Lord in everything that you do. For He will direct your paths. Folks, that is faith. Trusting God for what He claims. Trusting God in what He instructs us to do. And Trusting means obediently responding to what we have heard or been called to do. Let me give you an example. You all demonstrated faith in Fairview Baptist Church this morning. You likely either had a bulletin from last week or you received an email or heard on the radio that we were planning to meet this morning for Sunday school at 9.30 and then for church service following at 10.30. You weighed that evidence. 
whether it was the bulletin or, 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 or the radio or the email invite. And, and perhaps you've been here before, so you expected us to keep our word since we're generally here on Sunday mornings. Perhaps you'd met me or you'd met Pastor Dan and you believed us to be honorable, honest, trustworthy men. So if we said, hey, we're going to have church on Sunday morning, you expected that we would in fact have church this Sunday morning. Whatever it was, uh, we said, hey, come, we're going to be here for church at 9.30 Sunday morning and, and the main service at 10.30 this Sunday's morning. And you trusted us. You believed us. Or you had faith in us so much so that you actually set your alarm this morning. When it went off, you got out of bed. You got in the shower. You had a bowl of oatmeal. You brushed your teeth, I hope. Slapped on some deodorant. Got dressed. Got in your car and drove to church. Folks, that is exercising your faith. And when you got here, you found out that your faith was not in vain. Now, in the first century, in Jerusalem, Christians were persecuted to the point of death if they professed to be followers of this Jesus of Nazareth. Folks, you better be sure of something if you might lose your life over it. Now, a problem that we have had in America, quite frankly, what's caused us to have such weak men, but a problem that we've had here in America is that Christianity has become little more than a comfortable convenience. Just in case it might be true, I'll join a church. And if God does exist, then I'll show Him what a good person I am. Just in case God really does exist, hey, I'm going to pray, uh, Jesus, save me, because if God exists, I want to be on the right team and go to heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not saving faith. That is covering your bases. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not an emotion. And in full disclosure, faith in Christ does not necessarily make your life easier. In fact, life in general is hard. Job said that man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Now, if we decide to follow Christ and we put into our lives, uh, again, lean not on your own understanding in all your ways or acknowledge Him in all your ways, if we actually follow His instruction, we'll find out that things actually do work better. For example, the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. So the next time your spouse snaps at you, you have two options. You can either respond kindly and graciously with a, a, a soft answer, or you can respond sharply. Now let's see where we get at the end of this. We're either going to wind up in a fight, or we're going to wind up at peace. Boy, God's wisdom does work out better than man's wisdom. God says that man should work six days as unto the Lord. God says that we are supposed to budget and live within our means. God says that we are not supposed to be enslaved to debt. You know what? God's got some pretty good ideas. If we actually put His ideas into practice, we'll find that it actually works very well in our lives. But Christianity as a whole doesn't necessarily make your life easier. In fact, Christianity can make your life more difficult. Consider the lives of those first century Christians that were forced to go underground and literally live in the catacombs underneath Rome facing Roman persecution. Hey, Christianity didn't make their life any easier, did it? Consider 
Being a Christian in ISIS-controlled areas over the last decade. Hey, being a Christian didn't make life all rosy and easy for them, did it? Or being a Christian today in Iran or in communist China or upcoming in the United States of America, perhaps. Being a Christian doesn't necessarily make your life easier, but that doesn't matter because Christianity is not a feeling. Christianity is not an emotion. Christianity is based upon fact. Ladies and gentlemen, it's either true or it isn't true. Now, first thing I want us to consider briefly this morning, either God exists or He doesn't. Question number one. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And even the firmament gives example after example of an example after example of His handiwork. Every time you open your eyes, every time you walk outside, every time you look up in the night sky or look across a beautiful meadow, you see evidence of a Creator. On the screen, you're going to see a picture of a seashore. When my wife and I were spending so much time in Florida doing our mission work, planning a church down there this last year. One of the many speaking engagements we did is we had speaking engagements uh, literally every weekend, Friday and Saturday, across the state of Florida, and then back and preaching on Sunday. But we would, after in some of our spare time, we would go down to the beach and walk around a little bit. And one beach in particular, we came out and I noticed this incredible circle of seashells laying there on the beach. So naturally, being the man, I explained to my wife how this happened over millions and millions and millions of years. <laughs> the waves came in, the waves came out, the waves came in, the waves came out. And magically, amazingly deposited about a one-foot width of seashells there in a perfect circle. Trust me, honey, no critical thinking skills. You can trust me, just like public education and modern media. (laughs) Now, folks, that is obvious nonsense. This is obviously designed. What seems likely to have happened is a bunch of beachcombers went out there with buckets, gathered up a whole bunch of shells, and then formed a circle because we all know that circles don't just happen by accident. It takes intent It takes energy, takes design, it takes a creator to create even something so simple as a circle of seashells. We all know that something designed needs a designer. Something built needs a builder. Something baked needs a baker. Something created needs a creator. If I was to tell you that the beautiful silver car my wife and I drove here uh, in this morning, that we happened to be walking by Napa when all of a sudden must have been a gas line exploded. And after the smoke cleared, we went in to see if there was anybody that needed help. And once we fanned through the smoke, we found this beautiful new silver Mercedes. Wow. Wow. How many of you would believe that is a logical, plausible explanation for how that car came into existence? Of course not. How many of you would believe me if I said this beautiful wooden pulpit, very simple structure that it is, simply replicates the cross? A little added craftsmanship here, a little stain. You know how we got this? Well, there was another gas leak at Lowe's. And there was a terrible explosion. Fortunately, it was at night. Nobody was in the building. 
But after going in and clearing out the rubble, and once the smoke cleared away, there standing in the middle of the lumber section was this perfect pulpit, stained even with the little flap here. What a miracle. Now, how many of you would believe me if I told you that? Well, obviously, it's nonsense. Obviously, you might not know who the carpenter was, but there is overwhelming evidence that there was, in fact, a carpenter. Because we know that things like this don't get built without a builder putting them together. Now, consider for a moment just the eyeball, the complexity of just this one part of your body. How some miraculous way it gathers light and gathers this signal and, and, and construction and sends it onto your mind and your body can absorb this and process what it's seen. What an incredible miracle. Ladies and gentlemen, there is not one single case where something just leapt into existence out of nothing. And there is not one single case where something that was alive came from something that was dead. Only life can produce life. And something that is created must have a creator. So to sum this up briefly in passing, to the answer to that first question is, is there a God? Well, let me tell you, there is strong evidence that would lead you to conclude that there is, in fact, a creator. So if we can agree that that much is true, there's at least strong evidence that there's a creator. Who is he? Well, there have been lots of spiritual people that have come saying that we can tell you about heaven or we can tell you how to get to heaven or we can tell you how to get to God. But there's only been one man that ever came to earth and not only claimed to be God, but promised that he would prove that he was God. As he said, you evil and adulterous generation, you ask for a miracle, I'll give you one, just one. Just as Jonah was in the fish's belly for three days and three nights, so will I, the Son of Man, be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, and then I am coming out. And my resurrection will declare to the entire world that I am, in fact, the Lord. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we all just celebrated Christmas, the virgin birth of a baby, God who became flesh. Now, think just for a minute. How many of you all celebrated Christmas? How many have celebrated Christmas? Anybody, let me ask, anybody here not celebrate Christmas? Okay, what is Christmas? Christmas remembers the virgin birth. Okay, let me ask you another question. Are virgin births possible? No, it's impossible. That's not natural. Virgins cannot bear a child because they don't have the seed of the man in them to make them pregnant. But the Bible tells us that Mary was a virgin yet was impregnated through the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. And that baby, God became flesh came and dwelt among His own creation. As a matter of fact, everyone in this room celebrated that day 15 days ago. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you really believe that? 
Now, there's a difference between repeating a statement because of routine or tradition or habit and really believing it to the point where it changes your life. Let me say this, if you hear me say this often, why did a man who was raised in hard times in the redneck area of the Galilee in a poor, hardworking carpenter's family, spent the first 30 years of his life just being a a really uh, uh, unremarkable young man living in Nazareth, had a three-year itinerant ministry that began with his baptism by John the Baptist there at the Jordan just down near Jericho that had this three-year ministry reportedly in historic or non-biblical history talks about this being a miracle worker. Nevertheless, this man who lived for three years preaching never traveled more than 90 miles from the place of his birth. He never amassed a fortune. He never raised an army. He never conquered a city. After three years of ministry in Jerusalem, he was arrested, falsely charged, and crucified. We say, well, that's a big deal. There, you had a Jewish man crucified by the Romans. That was no big deal. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish men crucified by the Romans. Why is this guy with this non-eventful, nondescript life so important that we measure world history from the date of his birth? Ladies and gentlemen, there is only one logical answer, and it is this. The resurrection was true. The tomb really was empty. Now, the world hates that fact, but the world knows it's true. And if the tomb was empty, then Jesus is the Lord. We all, ladies and gentlemen, are presented with the same facts. However, it's up to each and every one of us as to what we do with that information. John 3, we have a famous story. It gives us the most famous verse in all Scripture. A man named Nicodemus, a highly respected Jewish leader, a rabbi, a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the 70 political and spiritual leaders for all of Israel, recognized that there was something special about this Jesus of Nazareth. And he not wanting to get recognized because it was politically incorrect to, to be hanging out with Jesus if you were part of the in crowd, he came to Jesus by night. And he said, Master, we know that the work that you do must come from God. Jesus stopped him in mid-sentence and said, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus backpedaled. He said, born again, but, but, but Master, I'm an old man. How do I get born again? Am I supposed to get back into my mother's womb and be born again? Jesus said, no, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus, you've already been born of the flesh. You need to be born of the Spirit. And then he proceeded to tell him, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and when those were bitten by the snake and were sick, and they were on the verge of death, all they had to do was look to that staff, and they would be miraculously healed. He said, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He said, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever trusts Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He goes on in verse 17, God didn't send me into the world to condemn the world, Nicodemus. The world's already condemned. I came into the world so that the world through me might be saved. Verse 18 is on the screen. This is the point. Whosoever believes in me is not condemned. But whosoever does not believe in me 
is condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the point again is this. We all have the same evidence. We all have the same overwhelming evidence. We all are presented with the same facts. But just like Adam in the garden wasn't prohibited from making the wrong choice, we, each and every one of us, have the opportunity to either bend the knee and cry out and trust Jesus and follow Jesus or simply say no. Now, a testimony is a person's life story. And every person has their own testimony. At some point, as we just said, you have to decide, is what I claim to believe really real? Once you come to that face-to-face moment, that will change you. That moment where it's not just habit, not just tradition, but when you embrace it as absolute truth, that will change you your behavior. Now let's look at some evidence. Let's look at some testimonials. One you know well, this man named Saul of Tarsus, who was famous for his vehement hatred of Christ and followers of Christ. We're first introduced to Saul, who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I believe, meaning a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee, Uh, by his sect. His mother and father were both Israelites. He was naturally born. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, which would be like saying, I'm related to George Washington somewhere along the line. That was hot stuff if you were a Jew to be of the tribe of Benjamin. He had done everything, was zealous keeping the law, and zealously tried to wipe out Christians. We first saw him standing there after giving the go-ahead to stone Stephen, the 3,000 stones that Dan references that Stephen received for his work in ministry. And we see his work from there. We find very quickly in the book of Acts that he actually had a pocket full of arrest warrants. And he was on the road to the capital of the province of Syria, a city called Damascus. And outside Damascus somewhere, a bright light shone brighter than the sun, knocking him to the ground. And the voice came from that light saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why do you kick against the pricks? Translate that. A prick was an ox goad. You used it. A herdsman would use it to make sure his herd was moving in the direction that he wanted them to go. God was saying to Saul, Saul, why don't you do what I want you to do? Saul's words were this. Lord, he knew this was the Lord. No doubt. Big bright light, brighter than the sun. Voice sounded like thunder. (laughs) Okay, I know. Okay, Lord, who are you? Understand how important that question is. Jesus has shown up, said, hey, I'm him. I'm the Messiah. I'm going to be in the tomb three days, three nights. When I come out, you're going to know I'm the Lord. Saul said, no, 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 no. I'm not listening. I don't like it. I don't like it. I'm going to kill the Christians. Don't like Jesus. Okay, we're going to wipe them all out. Big bright light, Saul, why don't you do what I want you to do? Well, wait a second. I thought I was doing what you want me to do. I thought, but in fact, if I'm not, and the Lord's telling me I'm not, uh, Lord, what's your name? (laughs) And I can tell you, although it's not written in Scripture, you know in the back of Paul's mind he was going, please don't say Jesus, please don't say Jesus, please don't say Jesus. (laughs) 
And what was the next sentence? I am Jesus of Nazareth. And what was Paul's response? Lord. Okay. What do you have me to do? And we know from that point, when Paul came face to face with the facts, Paul came face to face with the risen Christ, that he obviously believed in Jesus, trusted Jesus obediently at that point, became a follower of Jesus at that moment, and look at the rest of his life, committed to serving the Lord. A complete 180 degree turn from what he was once doing to when he met Jesus to his life after meeting Jesus. Well, say, my, that's a wonderful testimony. I love to hear those testimonies uh, about guys that are going down the wrong way and then all of a sudden are, are going the right direction. Wow, those are glorious. But what about those of us that got saved as a kid or got saved somewhere along the line and we never went out and went rabble-rousing? I was never a drunk or a lech or anything like that. Well, what about my testimony? Well, let me introduce you to a young man named Timothy. Timothy, the Scripture tells us, had a Gentile father but a Jewish mother. His mother and grandmother trained him as a good Jewish boy in the Scriptures. He grew up being a great kid. I'm sure the top of his class. I'm sure when he rode his bike down the street, all the neighbors pointed to him and went, what a good little boy that Timothy is. What a fine young man. One day, Paul comes through. Paul and Barnabas, they're in Lystra. Paul's preaching. Timothy hears him. Timothy says, he's talking about the Messiah. I believe that to be true. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He rose from the dead. And Timothy went from being this really good, fine, young man to being a Christian and spending the rest of his life serving Jesus, much of it tagging along with and being mentored by Paul. You know what? That's Timothy's testimony. Not nearly as sexy as Saul's, but it's his testimony. You all know my testimony. Look at this. Look at the guy with the dark hair. <laughs> now, what you don't see is this young football player here actually had hair. I had one of those stupid-looking kind of mullet haircuts. What I am here is at 25, almost 26, just a couple of months before I turned 26, I had been rebaptized. You all know the story. I'd made a profession of faith as a six-year-old. It's a good kid. My dad was a bivocational pastor, actually pastored the little chapel that was next door for many years. Didn't know everything, but I can remember one evening on a Sunday evening at Henderson Hills, dad was filling the pulpit there. That was a new mission church back in the day in 69. And I remember walking the aisle and giving my heart to Jesus. Over my life, I was a pretty good kid. Actually, between me and Steve and Dave, there was no comparison. I was absolutely mom's favorite. And if you'd seen us or been around us at all, you'd understand why. But I was recruited to play college football. I was somewhat of a late bloomer. I literally blossomed from the ugly ducking, duckling into the swan and became a big shot at Oklahoma State University. Made the varsity as a true freshman. I, after being raised in a very strict, fundamental, independent Baptist home, no card playing, no dances, all the typical, no dating, I got to college and I discovered things that I did not know existed. 
And as the scripture says, sin is fun for a season, but there's always a price to pay. But for my five years in Oklahoma State, and for my first three years in the National Football League, I had all sorts of knowledge because I have been born and bred in the Bible. My mom and my dad taught me the Bible every day of my life. Before I went to bed at night, we, I would recite the books of the Bible. I would recite Bible verses as mom did her best to pour into me. I had Bible knowledge. I could discuss theology with anyone even when I was living like the devil. And I called myself a Christian. But then I actually examined what the term Christian means. It means to be a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. And out of respect for my father, on one Sunday evening after my third year with Chicago, and boy, this was such an important year because this was going to be the first time I was actually planning to stay in Chicago and work out and live there year-round. My life was going to change dramatically. I was going to cut a lifeline basically to Oklahoma. Who knows where I had be at that, if that had actually happened. But I was at home, and out of respect for my father, I was in church on a Sunday evening. And Dad preached, and I listened, and I recognized, Paul, you call yourself a Christian. But there is no evidence that Jesus is the Lord of your life. And as this big, arrogant NFL football player, I actually, ladies and gentlemen, I'm ashamed to admit this, I wore sunglasses inside. (laughs) I was one of those athletes. I'm so ashamed. In this little congregation, maybe 40 people in the pews, big NFL guy from Chicago gets up in the back because, you know, Baptist preacher's kids can't sit far enough in the back. By the way, I see you all in the back. <laughs> I got up, walked down the aisle, I got down on the knees, and I made, my, made sure that Jesus was mine. And I was serious this time. Wasn't that the words changed that much, but my heart was real wasn't just repeating something as a get-out-of-hell-free card. It was like, you are the Lord. You really rose. You're, you're who you said you were. I believe that. I believe it so much that it's going to radically transform my life because I'm not just saying it. I really have accepted it. And from that day until now, some 33 or so years, I have been doing my best to walk with the Lord to the best of my ability day by day as a Christian. Ladies and gentlemen, that is is my testimony. What is yours? Jesus said, Whosoever believes in me is not condemned, but whosoever refuses to believe in me is condemned already. There's only two options presented with the information. Either you celebrate Christmas just out of hobby and habit. Either you celebrate Easter just out of hobby and habit. You claim Christ, hey, I'm a church member, just in case it actually happens to be true. Yeah, well, I want to have my name on that roll. I want to point to that decision I made, but it doesn't affect anything about my life. I live for the devil. I live for myself. I'm the God of my own life. Jesus, leave me alone. But if you do happen to be real, I do want to go to heaven. That doesn't cut it. That's covering your bases. There's been a point in time where you've come face to face with Jesus, and then what? Our Scripture text this morning talks about that famous account of Thomas. What a great man of God. Unfortunately, he has been labeled Doubting Thomas. But quite frankly, Thomas wasn't just a sap. He wanted to make sure. He wanted to make sure this was true. He wasn't willing to take those other yokels' word for it. You saw the text this morning. Thomas missed Jesus' appearance. He said, I'm not going to believe. I refuse to trust you guys. I won't believe unless unless, unless he stands right here. 
and holds out his hands, and I can put my finger in the nail prints in his hands, and I can reach over here and put my, my finger into the imprint inside, then I'll believe. So eight days later, Mr. Big Mouth standing there, and who shows up in the midst? Jesus. I said, okay, here, come on, come on. You satisfied? Thomas fell to his knees and cried out, My Lord and my God. Faith is examining the evidence, being convinced that something is true, and then trusting in that belief to the point where it changes your entire life and behavior. I'll give you another example. Paul, some 20 years later, was now arrested but had a certain amount of liberty, but nevertheless he was confined and he was living in a city called Caesarea by the sea, Caesarea Maritime. This had been King Herod the Great's palace that he had built in this Roman city that he constructed called Caesarea Maritime. It was also here that the Roman governor, Festus, would have been living as Paul would have been imprisoned also here in this city of Caesarea. The Scripture tells us that Festus was trying to figure out what to do with Paul. Paul, being a Roman citizen, had appealed his case of false arrest to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he had that right. But they couldn't just send him to Caesar without a list of charges. Quite frankly, they didn't have anything. He hadn't done anything wrong. They were only holding him because the Pharisees were bellyaching so much, and they were trying to keep peace in the land. Well, Herod Agrippa, who was the officially recognized Jewish king of this area, but really all under Roman authority. But Festus asked for Agrippa and his wife Bernice to come and hear Paul's testimony and see if they could help craft this arrest warrant and this arrest report to go along with Paul as he went to Rome. And Paul stood before Agrippa, and Paul revealed to everything, did a wonderful job of appealing to Agrippa as a wise man, as a Jewish man, certainly knowest the Jewish traditions, certainly knowing what the prophets said, also being alive at that time. He had heard everything. He knew good and well everything that had been going on with this man named Jesus. And as he wrapped up in Acts chapter 26, he said this in verses 25 and 27. He said, I speak forth words of truth and importance Solemn words. For King Agrippa, you know these things. I am persuaded that none of these things were hidden from you. You know good and well all that went on with Jesus. You know the reports of His miracles. You know the reports of His arrest. You know the role the Pharisees played. You know that He was beaten. You know that He was crucified. And you know the body was missing, Agrippa. You know this to be true. In fact, Agrippa, you know the prophets all prophesied this exact thing would happen. Now, Agrippa, do you believe I know you believe exactly what the prophets have said is exactly what's happened. Agrippa, do you believe? What was Agrippa's words? Too much of a price to pay. I'm king of the Jews. Wow, if I become a follower of Christ, I'd lose my position. I'd lose my power. I'd lose my wealth. I'd lose my influence here under the Roman government. Almost 
Paul. You provided me with all the evidence, the same evidence that Thomas had, the same evidence that we all have. And his answer was, almost, Paul. You almost convinced me. But the answer is no. And folks, let me again ask you, because we're going to wrap up here momentarily and you are going to have homework. What is your story? What is your faith journey? What is your testimony? Let me say this is not a hard question. You want to hear my testimony about me and my wife, Cindy? Oh, easy. We all have them with our spouses. I first met Cindy at a New Year's Eve party when she was still a senior in high school and I was a freshman at OSU. We were at somebody's house in Tulsa. Both of us there were, were on dates with different people. First time we met each other. We kind of got to know each other. We knew she came to OSU that next year. And, you know, that casual, casual waves and flirts and here and then. Then one day, my roommate was dating a girl that was good friends with Cindy. And she came over uh, to our house. And that's the first time Cindy and I really had a, a time to really get to meet each other and be introduced. And the relationship just began to develop from there. Mistakes were made. She was really stubborn. She did a lot of awful things. Incredible grace and mercy on my part. I patiently put up with her. I knew she'd turn around and, and be a good, good wife. Uh, never <laughs> but over time, our relationship strengthened. I was up in Chicago. She was finishing up school. We still kept in touch. And I came home in the offseason. One day I got smart after that first year in Chicago. And I took my playoff money. And I bought me a Rolex. And I bought her an engagement ring. And praise the Lord, they're both still working. She, in a moment of desperation, said yes when I proposed to her. And we got married on June the 3rd, 1989. We have been together now for going on 32 years. We have been blessed with seven pregnancies. Five were not successful. Two beautiful baby boys were given to us back-to-back in a period of about 20 months. One is now 28 years old and is a practicing attorney here in the community and also works as a volunteer in our church. Our other son is in chiropractic college down in, in uh, Dallas. That is our test. That's my testimony. That's my relationship with Cindy. I told you my testimony about the Lord just a few minutes ago. Let me ask you this. What's your testimony with your wife? What's your testimony with your husband? It's not a hard question. What's your story? Now, what's your testimony about Jesus? I want you to write out your testimony. I do, we've done this the third time I've done this in 20 years. And I'm serious. I want your testimony. I tell you, I do about a dozen funerals a year. Don't plan on them, but it's, part of, it's a part of life. Death is a part of life. Till the Lord comes, one of these days these bodies are going to wear out. One of these days we're going to be face-to-face with Jesus. As David Barton says, either by rupture or by rapture, one of these days we're going to be face-to-face with Jesus. And it's so I've got a file in there, in our lateral file. And I go in there when I have a funeral, and I go through and I look, and we've got them categorized and listed uh, testimonies, written testimonies of members of our congregation. You know how much easier it makes my job, plus how much more comforting it is to me and the family. In fact, many times after I preach the funeral message, I'll take this copy of the testimony and I'll give it to the children so they can have it. Boy, you know how, much, how, how I love going in there and finding that file and knowing, and you know how disheartening it is and discouraging it is when I see somebody that's been a member of my church for an extended period of time and I trust that they know the Lord and it seems that they know the Lord based upon behavior and their, and their, their, their uh, dedication to being here, their loyalty every time the service is over. So I'm making assumptions, but it breaks my heart when I go in there to the file and I realize I don't have 
a testimony turned in from that individual. So I'm asking you this, and I don't care if you are in our listening audience. I want to ask you to do the same thing. If you're following us online, you at Liberty Orlando, asking you to do the same thing. Tell me about Jesus. Who is he to you? What is he to you? How do you know? When did you come to know him personally? Tell me about your life together with Jesus. I want your testimony. You can either write it out. You can print it out and bring it up here. Or you can type it out and email it to us at info at fairviewbaptistedmond.org. Info at fairviewbaptistedmond.org. But I am not kidding. And please understand, we are getting ready to go into a period of time. I said a while ago, it's been very easy. It's been very comfortable to be a Christian in the United States of America. It might not be so. And you better know that what you claim to know is really real. Because as Dan said a while ago, before you get in the back seat of the car, you've got to know ahead of time, hey, what's my response going to be? I've got to know what I know. And if there is an opportunity, if there's a point in time where you face being fired or abandoning your faith, or, dare I say, and we've seen it around the world, why do we, living in America, think that we are some special group of Christians that we're going to be immune from persecution? We've seen Christians around the world in ISIS countries, communist countries, literally given the choice. And here, let me put this on you, Mom. Let me put this on you, Dad. Because I know how bold we all are right now in air-conditioned comfort, wishing I would shut up so we could go to lunch. Oh, yeah, I'll never. Really? What if there was that day where you had a gun pointed to your head, or worse yet, a knife at your throat? said, I will behead you unless you recant your faith. If all you've got to draw on is, hey, I had a good time at Falls Creek, you're not going to hold up. Your answer better be, I know that Jesus rose from the dead. I know that Jesus is Lord. I know if this man cuts my throat, I'm going to see Jesus just as Stephen did in a matter of seconds face to face, no longer dimly peeking through the glass, I'll be face to face, and I will see him as he is. You better know that you know that. And you say, oh, I can handle that. I'd give up my own life. Okay, men, what about if they were standing there holding your uh, knife to your wife's throat or to your child's throat? Or to your baby's throat. Do you know that what you claim is really real? Is he really real to you? I want your testimony. And as you ponder this homework assignment... Perhaps you don't have one. Well, why don't we make one together today? This day. 
will be the day. This day, this message, how you're considering this situation right now could in fact be your Damascus Road experience. This could be your moment where Thomas said, I'll not believe until, and right now, all the evidence has been presented just as clearly as you've ever seen it. This could be your coming face to face with Jesus in the upper room. This could be the day that you begin that new life together with Him, trusting in and walking with Jesus as your Lord and Savior.